Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of time's occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on June 12th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. As the Twill listener knows, we've been using the podcast platform to celebrate health law and policy lectures and discussions that in normal times you may have been actually able to attend. Well, now that our George Consortium COVID law briefings are taking a summer break, I'm pleased to welcome some new content providers. To discuss some upcoming shows, I'm delighted to welcome Kamel Shakar, the Executive Director of the Petri Floam Center for Health Law, Biotechnology and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Welcome, Kamel. Thanks, Nick. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited to discuss both this episode and the upcoming two episodes that are going to draw heavily from innovation and protection, the future of medical device regulation, which was originally the 2020 Petri Flom Center annual conference. Of course, as you mentioned, we've had to cancel the in-person aspect of this conference due to the pandemic. But the topic I think is really important. Medical devices have historically been less regulated than their drug and biologic counterparts, which allows for innovation to foster, but can also raise serious public health and safety issues. There's also a lot of interesting things going on in the intersection of medical devices with software and with algorithms, and we wanted to explore that in the conference. These episodes highlight a selection of the papers that were written originally for the conference, which was organized in collaboration with the University of Copenhagen's Center for Advanced Studies in Biomedical Innovation Law, or CIBO, and the University of Arizona Health Law Program. All of these papers will be published in an edited volume, probably coming out in a year or two. So if you'd like to read more, please keep your eyes open for that volume. This first episode looks at big picture issues with medical device regulation in the United States. First up, we have the Petrie Flom Center faculty director, Glenn Cohen, interviewing Matthew Herter, director of the Health Law Institute at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhouse University to discuss his paper, A Desi Design for Devices, Insight from the FDA's Drug Efficacy Study Implementation Program initiated during the 1960s for the improved regulation of medical devices today. We'll then have myself having a chat with Ephemios Parasidis, Professor of Law and Public Health at Ohio State University, about his paper, Compulsory Medical Device Registries, Legal and Ethical issues. Last, we have Christopher Robinson discussing crisis equals opportunity and danger, the opioid epidemic, problem-solving courts, and the manufacture of a new medical device market with the author of the paper, Ross Silverman, professor at Indiana University's School of Public Health. Welcome. My name is Professor Glenn Cohen. I am a professor at Harvard Law School and the faculty director for the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics. And for this podcast, I am delighted be joined by Matthew Herter. He is a professor in the faculties of medicine and law at Dalhousie and also the director of the Health Law Institute at Dalhousie University. And he's going to be talking to me a little bit about a paper he wrote with our friend Nathan Cortez, who is a professor at the SMU Dedman School of Law. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a pleasure to be on. We're really, really grateful. And this paper is so interesting. And I mean, I guess the jumping off point from the paper is what I would call the newfound fetishization, although maybe not so newfound, for real-world evidence. Is that kind of the way to frame it? I think so. 
um, you know, I've been in a variety of ways and some other projects been kind of digging into what's going on at the FDA writ large, although, as I'm sure many listeners will be quick to point out, you know, the FDA is a huge organization. There are lots of different centers and there are subcultures and different practices and parts of the organization or the agency. Um, But it springs from that larger shift towards uh, life cycle regulation, pushing more evidence generation off until after a drug or a device is approved, um, and then paying attention to so-called real-world data, real-world evidence to try and make sure that the safety uh, of um, and efficacy of these different products are assessed in different ways, in new ways, in light of larger changes that have happened in society, really. And what I love about this paper is it's both kind of backwards looking and forwards looking. I wonder maybe we should start with the historical part. Does that sound sort of of interest? Sure. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'll confess if I could do it all over again, I'd probably do a PhD in history. Um, so I always look, I love looking backwards and there's, there's so much rich scholarship on the history of the FDA. It's, it's hard not to do so. Um, and one of the more interesting and I think underappreciated episodes in the agency's history um, really has to do with after uh, changes in law, which have certainly garnered a lot of attention. They are considered, I guess, the start of modern drug regulation or health product regulation in the early 1960s um, when major changes in law were passed. But then it created all these sort of problems or challenges for the institution um, because of those changes in law, because of the a sort of new direction or directive from Congress, rather, to pay attention to the efficacy and make sure that products have uh, substantial um, evidence of effectiveness uh, if they're going to be on the market. And so what the agency did, um, really sort of interpreting that direction from Congress in, I think, a very progressive and proactive way was say was to say, we need to look back at all of the drugs that have come on market in the last 20 plus years um, before these major changes in law and evaluate their efficacy. But how are we going to do that? Thousands of drugs have come on the market for which they were only formally evaluated for safety. Um, this is not a task we can take on by ourselves. So they, over several years, created something known as the Drug Efficacy Study Implementation Initiative, or DESI for short, in which they worked with outside entities, specifically the National Research Council, the National Academy of Sciences, to really enlist expert panels in these um, ex post determinations of the efficacy of those various drugs that were on the market. And what I think is really important about that episode is not just the scale of the initiative, but its configuration, working with those outside actors. And I think that has um, really important relevance to some of the challenges the FDA is facing today with respect to devices, with respect to this move to look at um, evidence that's generated in the so-called real world. So I love the way you pitched this as kind of a DESI 2.0, which I think is so interesting because much of the 2.0 uh, tag, I think, goes really well with some of the examples you use. But you said a moment ago, again, the focus of this book and this chapter is on devices. So maybe you could say uh, a minute or two more on why you think this issue is particularly salient in the device space. Sure. So there's there's a few reasons for that. Um, one of them is I think there is just a huge volume challenge for the agency um, to try and make sense of uh, the number of um, seemingly low risk devices that are coming online um, because of the sort of inf- informational possibilities that are out there in light of the internet and so on with apps and all of these sort of um, health related interventions that sort of could fit 
in some kind of classification as a device. But there are just so many, they're coming online um, so fast that it's a real challenge for the FDA to offer a high level of scrutiny of those devices. And so what do you do with that? Well, if, if you mu- it's, a, it's a task that is perhaps bigger than the agency can take on by its own. So that's a good reason to think about alternative approaches. The other reason that we talk about devices in particular in the chapter, um, it springs from some added flexibilities that we think exist in the law around relying upon what we call third parties um, to not only uh, generate evidence about whether a device is fit for its intended purpose, um, but also to review that evidence and make recommendations to the agency about whether it should remain on the market, for example. So um, there are one of the things that we thought was really compelling is that at least where devices are concerned, there seem to be existing flexibilities in the laws that if the will was there for the agency to do this kind of initiative and create a DESE 2.0, the law wouldn't be part of the problem uh, in our estimation, at least not at this stage. I'm not saying it it wouldn't happen without uh, questions being raised about the legality of that kind of an approach, but um, we think there's at least um, an argument that could be made that enlisting third parties to do uh, reviews uh, of evidence that's generated and actually generate evidence of safety and effectiveness of certain kinds of devices, that those those legal flexibilities are there. And to its credit, the FDA has actually made moves in that, um, in that direction already. So uh, the National Evaluation System for Health Technology, or NEST as it's known, has, uh, has undertaken some of this work where they're really trying to look at evidence generated in the post-market setting around devices and evaluate it and make recommendations uh, to the FDA about what should be done, if anything, regarding a particular product. Um, but what we're trying to say that is, I think, novel in this chapter is the act of combining evidence generation and making doing the reviews. Those two things together hasn't really been done. Uh, the DESI, the original DESI program that was done for drugs back in the 1960s and 70s, uh, primarily, um, they were really just doing reviews of evidence that was already um, out there. And so what we're trying to do is to bring sort of the original DESI doing the review related work with the kind of work that Nest is doing in terms of amassing and analyzing real world evidence to combine those two functions into one. And we think uh, we think that's important to explore for a whole bunch of reasons. The volume pro- problem, as I said, but I also think, you know, the fundamental problem is that the FDA, as we all know, is a highly politicized agency. Um, and I think it's it has over time in recent years um, become somewhat defensive about who gets to produce knowledge, who gets to evaluate it around devices and drugs as well. And so if that's the fundamental problem, if that's the sort of political economy of drug and device regulation at the moment, then I think the most fundamental intervention has to be shaking up who gets to do the work of evidence generation, not just those developing the products, but independent actors, and then who gets to make recommendations about whether those products products are fit for purpose. And I think we need to shake up the sort of mix of actors that tend to be involved most of the time if we really want to see, I think, uh, a return to um, stronger regulation of medical devices and and perhaps drugs as well. This is so interesting, in part because I would say, if you said, hey, my paper's on real-world evidence, that term, I think, has largely, I will say, been somewhat co-opted by more libertarian forces, and I think co-opted to be used in the pre-approval 
space as a way of kind of suggesting that we might have less demanding requirements. And what I think is so interesting is that um, you have kind of used this idea in the post-approval phase in a way that actually, I think, cuts somewhat in the opposite direction, that maybe we need more surveillance and the like. I'm curious if you want to say a little bit more about the politics of real-world evidence and the way in which various factions are lining up to kind of use that term and use those ideas. Yeah, I think I think that's I would share your suspicion about how um, the term has been used and how it's being deployed. Um, and it's really, I think, to a large extent, um, raised a lot of concern and being deployed in a very strategic way to sort of lower the bar for market entry in many cases. But often, I think, as a sort of political strategy for uh, enacting policy reform, one of the most useful things you can do is take terms that are have some kind of uh, force associated with them, which have become part of the lexicon at the agency, and indeed through things like the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed by Congress in 2016. There's some legal provisions that rehearse that kind of language as well, is finding constructive ways to, to, to mobilize that evidence uh, or that terminology um, in the other direction. Um, so that's sort of the, the strategy behind some of this. But, you know, uh, this... Uh, I'll, I'll confess that this chapter springs from some work I've been doing, some qualitative research, uh, where I interviewed officials at the FDA who were in leadership positions, who worked as legal counsel for years, who worked in the Devices Center, the CDRH, and other parts of the FDA. And what I took away from those interviews, which have been ongoing since I've published some of that work, um, is really a sense that there's a problem um, of institutional incumbency, which I was hinting at earlier, where where the agency and in concert with uh, patient groups, um, industry players are really comfortable with the set of arrangements and who gets to opine on safety and efficacy of these different products. And we're seeing a certain stagnancy, if you like, in terms of um, decision making around when a product's profile changes over its life cycle, um, can we reverse a prior decision about whether it's effective or not? And I think we're seeing a lot of hesitation in that regard. And if we really want to move in, a, in an authentic way or a genuine way towards um, a life cycle approach to health product regulation, including devices, we need to be nimble. And to actually execute that, I think we need to shake up who the decision makers are, what the sources of evidence we rely upon. Um, and so I think we have to tackle that problem of incumbency, not just in terms of the actors, but how knowledge is produced about the safety and efficacy of drugs and devices. And so that's the sort of core problem in my mind that, that the regulator is facing writ large. And that's what we're kind of threading through this idea of um, sort of shifting what we mean by real world evidence to not just mean a, a lowering of the standard, but rather who gets to generate and assess the evidence and make recommendations to the agency so that it can make better decisions moving forward. So between the history, the political economy, the chapter is incredibly rich, but I want to, with one last question, to get you to say a little bit more about the way in which it's also incredibly up-to-date and relevant for debates happening right now. You take a few examples, including, I thought maybe we could spend a moment on the Apple Watch to kind of talk about the way in which the ideas of the chapter might play play into the regulation of uh, something like the Apple Watch or one of the other examples. I don't know which one is your favorite, but do you want to just say a word or two about that before we close? 
Sure. Um, so we work through a few different examples in the chapter that really try and highlight both the challenges and potentials of a, a DESI 2.0, I think. Um, and the Apple Watch is one where we're actually seeing, again, to the credit of the agency, um, some proactive work by the agency to get NEST, that um, uh, public-private initiative that the agency is involved in shaping, but there are outside researchers at various universities in the U.S. and so on that are um, working to generate real-world evidence, that sort of vexed term, um, but that can can really tell us a lot about whether the Apple Watch is, is working um, in, in the ways um, that we think it should, or w- whether the sort of data that's amassing about our various health and lifestyle-related choices can um, is is not misleading us in particular ways, for example. So with the Apple Watch, it's it's a positive example in the chapter of how the FDA has asked uh, Nest to sort of keep an eye on what's happening, to collect evidence around how well those features are working in the marketplace. A second example that um, is is notable in a different sort of way um, is uh, uh, the first digital drug that was ever approved um, by the FDA, and so it's a combination product of a device and a drug called Abilify MySight, which has essentially a chip um, embedded in the pill that a patient would consume that sends a signal to a patch which in turn sends a signal back to the company to make sure that patients are taking their prescription drug on the prescribed schedule, the pres- you know, to make sure that they don't um, uh, improperly adhere to the prescription because that can have all kinds of health-related consequences. And so that drug was approved, uh, I think, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but one of the things you can see if you look into the approval package that the FDA publicly disclosed after the approval Uh, you can see that the actual benefit of improving compliance by patients with their prescriptions was not demonstrated to the satisfaction of reviewers. And so one of the things that we, and yet it it garnered approval at the end of the day. And so one of the things that we think that highlights uh, and point out in the chapter is that I think there's a need to um, have different actors involved in deciding what the standard should be, how strong the evidence actually is, and then making decisions or at least recommendations to the agency about what should be done. Because in some cases, like this digital drug, which involves a device, um, it's it's not clear that the standards that we would think are be, would want to be applied are actually being followed. Um, so there's lots of examples there. I'm sure there are many others. Um, we're really trying to sort of put forth a novel idea of combining third-party reviews with third-party evidence generation with a view to shaking up the agency's practices. We hope in a positive direction direction, uh, despite sort of doubling down on this tricky concept of real-world evidence. Matthew Herter, thank you so much for this amazing chapter by you and Nathan Cortez. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. We look forward to uh, polishing it up and, and seeing it come out somewhere soon. Hello, everyone. This is Carmel Schaffer from the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. I'm joined today by Ephemio Parasides, who is Professor of Law and Public Health at the Ohio State University. We're going to discuss the chapter that he wrote with Daniel Kramer, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Harvard Medical School entitled Compulsory Medical Device Registries, Ethical and Legal Issues. Ifimi, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Carmel. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. 
Excellent. Before we talk about your chapter, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm a professor at Ohio State, like you mentioned. I'm a lawyer and a bioethicist with a focus on emerging technologies, FDA review, data ethics, and human subjects research. And my co-author, Dr. Kramer, he's a cardiologist. Great. And what made you interested in participating in the Regulating Medical Devices Conference in the first place? Well, Harvard clearly has one of the best health law programs in the country, and its annual conference has consistently been an exceptional forum. Um, Given our research interest in FDA law and policy, Dr. Kramer and I were honored that the conference organizer selected our work, and we were looking forward to sharing it with the conference attendees. Gosh, I love the flattery, Athemi. Could you you sum up your paper for us in about a tweet length? I'll give it my best shot. Um, So I would say compulsory medical device registries should be broadly used because they can help fill a large evidence gap concerning the safety and effectiveness of medical devices. Well, I'm not counting the characters, but for our listeners who might not be familiar with these compulsory post-market registries, could you explain to us what they are and what they're used for? Sure, happy to do so. Um, At its most basic form, a registry is a database of individuals that's used to track uh, health outcomes. They're used in several settings with drugs, vaccines, medical devices, etc. Companies use registries to track their products. Uh, Regulators sometimes use registries to monitor safety and effectiveness of a product once it's out on the market. And physicians also use registries to gain insights on how best to treat their patients. Uh, For this particular project, Dr. Kramer and I focused on cardiovascular registries, which are databases that track people who have received defibrillators, catheters, or other cardiovascular devices. So you call these compulsory. That sounds like there might be a legal mandate behind participating in these registries. Could you tell us the legal framework that sets up the registries? The two core agencies that use uh, post-market registries are the FDA and CMS. Um, FDA uses registries in order to track a device once it's approved and out on the market. When it comes to medical devices, one thing that most people don't realize is that the FDA is required to apply the, quote, least restrictive means of device evaluation. As a practical matter, what that means is that device manufacturers can just say that their device is analogous to something that's already on the market and they don't have to provide any clinical trials that actually show their device is safe and that it works. Um, Most uh, most devices, believe it or not, are approved through this uh, approval by comparison type procedure. And that basically means that a lot of devices on the market don't have accurate information on the device itself and whether or not it's safe and effective. And this even holds true for high-risk devices like cardiovascular devices. CMS is looking more at payment decisions and reimbursement. So CMS's mandate is to only allow reimbursement for medical care that is safe, effective, and medically necessary for patients. So given the gap in FDA's review framework, um, which doesn't always provide good evidence on safety and effectiveness, CMS then steps in and says, look, we need more information to make sure we're only paying for those devices that have a good chance of actually working. Continuing our exploration of the legal framework, what are some of the important legal, statutory, regulatory protections for people whose data is included in these registries? Sure, I'd be happy to go into it. Um, Really, there's a lot at play here, but the two core areas that apply are health privacy laws and laws that govern research with with human subjects. So on the health privacy side, HIPAA is the primary legal framework, um, but HIPAA scope is limited. It applies to healthcare providers, insurance companies,
companies and their related companies. It doesn't apply, for example, to any health information collected by a medical device company, by a patient advocacy group, a professional society, or even health apps. So in other words, these health privacy laws under HIPAA are going to apply depending on who is actually creating the registry and maintaining it. And all of those entities actually create registries. On the human protection side, um, the common rule sets forth the general legal framework. But as a threshold matter, the common rule only applies to federally funded research or studies that are submitted to the FDA in the context of some device approval. Um, Some institutions like academic medical centers have voluntarily adopted the common rule for all the research that's conducted at that institution. But other registry stewards um, aren't legally bound by the common rule, and it's entirely up to them if they decide whether or not to follow its protections. Let's take a step away from the legal and talk about ethical considerations that go into these registries. Do you think that these registries are ethical considering that they are compulsory? It's a great question, Carmel. We could talk for hours about the ethics here. Um, One of the real key issues is informed consent, right? To what extent do patients actually gain information on what the registry is going to be used for and actually provide consent? And in many instances, the answer is they don't give consent. So patients are automatically enrolled into these registries. Um, This issue of consent also brings up the notion of patient autonomy. Should patients have the choice to opt out of a compulsory registry? Now, all of this, of course, has to be balanced against um, public health benefits that come from having robust registries that track patients um, and their health outcomes that come from using certain devices. Do you have any other recommendations for the governance of these registries? I don't think so. I think as a general matter, medical devices have similar concerns when it comes to a regulatory and patient protection side. We want to know if the devices are safe. We want to know if the devices work. And given the real limitations in the FDA review process when it comes to medical device approvals, um, large increase in device recalls that have happened in recent years, these post-market registries are in many ways the best way to fill an evidence gap and help ensure that patients are afforded the best available health care. So before we sign off, one last question. Has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the ethical calculations for compulsory registries? Or is there anything you would advise policymakers to do given the pandemic? It's an interesting question, Carmel. Um, With COVID-19, the FDA has relied heavily on emergency use authorizations, um, which even have a lower bar than the standard device approval mechanisms. And what we've seen with accuracy problems with COVID-19 viral and antibody tests, it really highlights the dangers that might happen um, if devices don't have a robust pre-market review. So if anything, COVID-19 has highlighted the need for uh, compulsory registries. Thinking about quality healthcare really depends on robust data and compulsory registries can help get us to that goal. Excellent. With that, our time is up, but thank you for walking us through what is a really interesting paper on compulsory post-market registries. Thanks, Carmel. It's been my pleasure to join you. Hi, my name is Christopher Robertson. I'm here with Ross Silverman, author of a co-author of one of the chapters in our book on the future of regulation of medical devices. The chapter is titled Clouded Judgment, Preventing, Preventing Conflicts of Interest in Problem-Solving Courts. Well, can we start by summing up your paper for us in a tweet-length uh, description? How 
what would you put sure. on Twitter? Uh, well, uh, I'd uh, uh, I'd say relationships uh, established between uh, the drug and device industry and problem solving courts uh, may be resulting in uh, limited treatment options uh, for people with opioid use disorder uh, and increased oversight is warranted. Great. We won't audit the number of characters in that, but that's, that's a nice tight start. So you called them problem solving courts. They're sometimes known as drug courts. Can you explain for us what they are and what types of cases they see? Sure. Well, um, what we have found over the years is when it comes to people with addiction, um, especially as we've been looking over the last couple of years at the uh, opioid epidemic, uh, imprisonment does not, uh, when people come out of in, uh, of prison, um, they actually are significantly at higher risk of overdose um, and and death due to uh, essentially restarting uh, behaviors that they uh, never really got addressed in uh, the criminal justice system. So drug courts were created as an alternative for nonviolent crimes to allow uh, essentially a rehabilitation and treatment process to, to be done um, at, with the idea that if you graduate from that program, uh, you would not have uh, your uh, to serve your criminal sense. Now, what's striking about your paper is, is we normally think about a court as being between the accused person and the government, but you really shine a light on the involvement of drug companies and device companies in these courts. Can you tell us a little bit about that current relationship between drug courts and these manufacturers? Sure. Well, one thing to be clear is the, the court itself is not uh, directing treatment, but what they do is they put together a team uh, that includes a, tr- a treatment provider from the community that they are going to connect up the uh, enrollee in the in the drug court program uh, with. What we found is, especially during the ramp up of the uh, uh, of the epidemic, was that uh, drug and device manufacturers saw this as an opportunity to create a new uh, market for their uh, uh, products to help people with drug treatment. Um, and so we saw um, a significant amount of what we would call in the medical systems detailing. We saw that they were entering into the education uh, space for uh, judges and for court personnel um, uh, and providing them with information that you know would you know give them the may give them the full scope of information about different treatment options but again they are manufacturers and of their own products and oftentimes would be sort of putting a thumb on the scale to uh, you know and just having those relationships puts a thumb on the scale in favor of their own products now I understand this is a, a problem with both medical devices and drugs but our, our our book is really focused on the former so I wanted to ask you about the bridge device in particular what is that medical device and how is it an example of the manufacturer getting involved with the drug court so the bridge device is a uh, it was marketed as a device that would help uh, people who uh, use opioids um, with their detox uh, process the detoxification process is uh, obviously can be very painful a lot of side effects the idea of this was it was a neurostimulation device that you would put behind the person's ear that would uh, emit uh, electrical pulses um, and it was supposed to bridge their time from having 
having used opioids to the treatment, the which and and in this case the preferred treatment was a non-opioid. It was called an antagonist uh, called Vivitrol. Um, so this device, the they went out. There's a lot of questions about how the uh, how the device uh, got its FDA approval and the process that uh, that has gone through. My um, colleague Jody Madeira, who is a, uh, the lead author on this piece, uh, has talked a lot about that in her own work. Um, but they have gone out and convinced courts that this should be the preferred approach to get uh, people from opioids onto these non-opioid treatments. So one of the things that jumped out to me in your paper was you use this phrase moral entrepreneur to refer to judges in these drug courts. What do you mean by moral entrepreneur and and um, what it, what problems does it present? So, so the idea of the moral entrepreneur is what the, um, the judges come into this process and they have their own belief systems. And one of the beliefs that is most, that we found is common within, uh, uh, that's, that's being leveraged by the, uh, those who are educating them, the marketing that's being done, the outreach that's being done is the idea that, uh, some of the, while some of the traditional treatments for opioid use disorder are actually, uh, opioid, they work the same way. They're opioids themselves. Um, but what it does is it moves a person to a less dangerous, less harmful treatment like uh, methadone or buprenorphine. Um, the uh, the newest drug in the market is is what's called an antagonist. It's not a uh, an opioid, and so that really resonates with the judges. The idea that you are not trading one opioid for another um, can be facilitated if the court establishes relationships with a treatment provider who uh, who prefers to use that type of treatment over some of these more common, well-established, and less expensive treats. And so this idea of moral entrepreneurship is by taking these actions, these judges are able to sort of see their moral beliefs being implemented within this system. Fascinating. So you've also identified in the paper with your co-authors a range of solutions for this problem of avoiding improper influence by drug and device companies on the drug court judges and treatment teams. So let's talk a little bit about what you see as the most promising solution going forward. Sure. Well, I think you know one of the things that is very similar to how we, uh, what we see going on here, uh, we see a lot of similarities to what uh, has happened in over previous decades with um, uh, industry uh, outreach to uh, physicians. And so we took a lot of our insights uh, into potential solutions from work that's been done uh, within that space. Um, what we found is I think you're going to probably need a combination of uh, systems to to really overcome this issue, which is um, the problem we're trying to solve is making more transparent uh, the sources of education that the drug and treatment court uh, personnel are receiving um, and to make sure that the full range of treatment options are available to the enrollees in the drug courts. And so we do see uh, uh, use of things like sunshine laws would be uh, a valuable uh, uh, component of uh, these types of solutions. So not only having disclosure by the courts and the 
support uh, personnel as to where they're receiving education or other, uh, you know, um, when they've been, you know, when they've had meetings with or uh, sponsorships uh, have been provided or samples are being provided within their systems. Um, but also that would bring uh, oversight over the manufacturers themselves into the process as well. We think that this is something that's going to require uh, oversight, not just on the courts, but also by the uh, uh, by the manufacturers or of the industry itself. Let me just follow up on that front. How do you envision these disclosures being utilized? What, what, what you see them actually, who do you see using them and what, what might they do with the information? Well, I think the, the goal here is to make more transparent how these systems are being, uh, how they, they're being constructed. Um, there is some, I mean, in, in some circumstances, you know, judges in uh, this day and age uh, are are electable. Um, in many cases, they come up for re-election or reappointment. Um, so I think that this can uh, be a part of uh, that process. Um, so that would, would make them uh, more accountable to uh, the public that they're serving. Um, and I also think this, uh, this can help facilitate making sure that comprehensive services, which is the gold standard recommendation for the treatments to be provided through these systems, is being uh, pursued and upheld. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up our interview with Ross Silverman. Thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to a future conversation. Thank you. And that was the Week in Health Law. You can find Carmel at Carmel Shakar on Twitter. Glenn Cohen is at Cohen Prof. Matthew Herder is at C-M-R-H-E-R-D-E-R. Christopher Robertson is at Prof C. Robertson. And Ross Silverman is at PHLU. Carmel, thank you so much for joining me and bringing these great discussions to our audience. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe and sane week.